welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Stop having fun. Now, this is our last section, our last session in the weight room. I want to see the effort. I want to see that max effort from you guys and gals. This is our last session in the weight room. So I want to see you move those weights. Because we can do it. Individually we can't do it, but together we can do it. So, uh, I know. We need to hear from um, Isabel, and then we had another comment. So, Isabel, would you come back and ask your question again for the, in front of the whole group so they can have the advantage of the question? Because Isabella had a real good question and relates to what Ben had to say, too. Huh? To your, yeah, the basic dilemma you felt you saw yourself in. Hi, my name is Isabel. I'm a I want to make a comment. It took like a really long time before I could say sexaholic, not recovering sexaholic. That was a big step for me. And my question to Jeff was um, all this time in recovery, and I'm feeling this fear, absolute fear of my higher power that I'm the bug and he's the windshield. And we all know what happens to bugs when they hit windshields. And um, how scary that is, and how I thought I had God, and I actually got worse and hit bottom and felt a betrayal, and now I just have this real fear of my higher power. Where's that going? <laughs> well, what I what I told her is that we keep thinking we have surrendered at a deep enough level, but we haven't. And how do you know when you've surrendered at a deep enough level? And the answer is, there's nothing totally true in this program, but essentially, that's when the peace starts to come. That's when the peace starts to come. Uh, And that's what Vince's comment of, gosh, I thought I was practically walking in the footsteps of Christ. He was going through that same feeling that you were having there. You know, I've cleaned up my life, I've made some amends, I've stopped doing this stuff. You know, how come I ain't feeling great? <laughs> and the answer is, we ain't feeling great because we ain't feeling great. That's just simple. And, and we say, how come this is taking all this time? Why is it taking as long as it's taking? And again, the answer is, we work this thing until. Until what? We work this thing until we start getting the relief that we're promised. And that relief will be there. Now some people it takes longer than others. But we don't 
again, we, we get into this thing and we try to measure, we try to compare. And we refuse to recognize uh, the different things that have been involved. Like, one of the reasons I got uh, as lucky as I did is I had, I had spent 17 years failing. I can't tell you how wonderful a benefit 17 years of failure is. And sometimes I tell people that. You want to have quicker success? Fine, spend, 50, spend 17 years failing first. Then you'll have quicker success. Oh no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> so that's what I kind of said. Is that about what I said to you? And what did, what did you feel about that? I'm encouraged because I do feel waves of peace every now and then so I know something's working so I'll just keep suiting up and showing up. No, and some good things are happening in your life are there or not? Oh yeah, I'm just feeling those rewards of recovery I'm getting a promotion in my job and um, better relationship with my daughters uh, a new car you know, just things like that that are starting to happen that I stand back and just am amazed How's your relationship with your ex? Um, he doesn't like me very much, <laughs> and okay. I, you know, there's not much I can do. What kind of relationship? What's what stage is the relationship in right now? He's remarried okay. and has delved into his new family and has completely abandoned any previous family. Okay, They're including your children. My yes. children included. Okay, so. okay, but uh, that's all part. No, is that process, can that go on quickly and smoothly? No. Very complex, very complex. Yeah. Okay. It's been very complicated. That's perfect. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Isabel. Thanks, Isabel. Hi, Jess. I'm Steve. I'm a sexaholic. Hi, Steve. Hi, Steve. And uh, I talked with you briefly about kind of the generational effects of this disease. And uh, I have four sons and a daughter. And uh, my eldest son got bit by the disease. And happily, I was nine, six or nine months into the program and could deal with that in compassion and love. And we're sort of soldiers in the battle together. And it's how, old, how old is he? He's 15 now. Uh, but I've got a four-year-old who's a real pistol. And we'll find him hungover. Uh, uh, couches and he just masturbates. He loves the feel of rubbing himself and and you know, a pediatrician said, it'll go away. <laughs> and, and, and we joked on the break that, you know, at 41 I finally decided for me it probably wasn't going away by itself. <laughs> and, and I hear so many stories in essay about people who parents reacted wrong or harshly and you know, we'll kind of say, hey, Stevie, if you want to do that, you know, go to your room. If you, or we try to just distract him. I mean, he's four going on five. And do you have any counsel? Oh, that? thank God you brought that up. That's, uh, I, I hadn't got that aspect of your question. When you asked. Personally, I need to give you some material that my wife gave me on that question. Let's hear it. Is, is there such a thing as Essatot? <laughs> 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 We're laughing with you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, there's that issue of of childhood stuff. A whole lot of people have taken and ridden that hard, and it's a horse that's too well ridden, mm -hmm. and it is not worth what it's not worth what is, is being asked of it. Uh, my wife gave me a couple of things here that she found on that subject. 
man is born broken, he lives by mending. The grace of God is glued. Man is born broken. He lives by mending. The grace of God is glued. That was Eugene O'Neill, by the way. She was so struggled that that was him. But what we we want the world, you know, this is our grandiosity and egotism. We want, we, our conception of the world is the way we want things. Okay, look at a wonderful benefit sexualism is to you. Yeah. And here's this four-year-old son of yours, and you want to deprive him, for God's sake, <laughs> of all the joys and splendor and beauty of your addiction. What a terrible thing you're trying to do to that young man. How else can he have the answer brought to his attention in a clear and forceful way, but to mm-hmm. to go down the path us sexologists are down. Now, he might not be lucky enough to be one of us. Mm-hmm. He might be just some, he might be so stupid, he's just an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> the poor devil. The poor devil. <laughs> Imagine having to deal with that. I mean, sure, they laugh a lot, but they they don't get quite as much fun out of it, I don't think, as we're starting to get out of it. You know, you want to to deprive him of that enjoyment? Okay, now I can tell you why he was made that way. And a very important poem. It's called The Monument by Blaine Jorgensen, this great lyric Norwegian poet, if there is such a thing. (laughs) <laughs> God, before he sent his children to earth, gave each of them a very carefully selected package of troubles. These, he promised, smiling, are yours alone. No one else may have the blessings that these problems will bring you. And only you, not your son, only you, for you, just for you, not for your son, only you have the special talents and abilities that will be needed to make these problems your servants. Now go down to your birth and to your forgetfulness. Know that I love you beyond measure. These problems that I give you are a symbol of that love. The monument you make of your life with the help of your problems will be a symbol of your love for me. So you're building a monument to God, showing your love for God with these special problems that he handcrafted for you. Now, you would think of disturbing that process in your son? But on the end, the answer is yes, you would. And you'd like to disturb it as much as possible. <laughs> Pride in me is a bigger defect yeah. than lust. So, yeah. Yeah. I want to create him in my own image. God yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so this is another way of looking at it. Now, the Dalai Lama, and this is another one my wife gave me, the Dalai Lama and his people believe that when a lot of things start going wrong all at once, and this is for you too, uh, what was the name of the gal was just up here? Elizabeth? No. Isabel. Huh? Isabel. The Dalai Lama and his people believe that when a lot of things start going wrong all at once, it is to protect something big and lovely that is trying to get itself born 
and that this something needs for you to be distracted so that it can be born as perfectly as possible. That's another phase put on the difficulties that we see. And then we are not punished for our sins, but by our sins. So have we been punished enough? The answer is yeah. We were punished. Our sins were our punishment. Our sins and our seeing them as sins were our punishment. How does it feel to shoot a quiver full of arrows at a target and go down there and find that none of them hit? It's pain. And that's what we did. We missed the mark. We failed. We sent the arrow awry through lack of concentration, lack of grace, you know, seeking grace. So, uh, now I need to have some small measure of compassion and say I understand, I do understand your problem. Is a part of a father or mother who would wish that their child, children never have to experience the pain they have experienced. But incorrectly. Because each of us have been given a very carefully, each of our children have been given a very carefully selected package of troubles. So they can use them to build their monuments to God. Now, we have to, we have to do what we can, but uh, as a psychologist, there is damn little evidence to show that we have a massive effect on people. Even when we do have a pretty big effect on people, there are other things that can come along that we couldn't control, like car accidents and other things. So we can't produce kids that walk the straight and narrow and are everlastingly happy. Yeah, I, I've seen that with my 15-year-old. He. Uh you know, in the disease, I couldn't connect with him, and then I got sobriety and recovery, and then the disease bit him, and I've been able to share that, and it's been glue in recovery with us actually finally connecting. Yeah. We never did before. Yeah. So I can finally say I'm a grateful sexaholic. That's what finally caused me and my oldest boy to, to hook up and, and love each other. Yeah. So it's, okay. I guess, same thing for the little guy. Huh? Thank you. Thank you. Another one that says, God, this came from my meditation um, uh, September 30th. God can never make us into wine if we object to the fingers he uses to crush us with. If God would only use his own fingers and make me broken bread and poured out wine in a special way. But when he uses someone who I dislike, or some set of circumstances to which I said I would never submit and makes those the crushers, we object. And that's, again, you see, all day long we've been talking about egotism. We've been talking about God problems. 
narrow ego, edging God out, ego. Okay, another point that was made, so that was to the effect that uh, on these first step problems, one way if you want to have a slip, is gar- I can guarantee you you're going to have it. And that starts getting sloppy on, you, on your identification of yourself in your first step. And what happens on that is, uh, I identify myself, I'm just, I'm a guy that, uh, uh, compulsive masturbator, fantasizer, uh, liar, thief, um, uh, abused uh, young college women, abused some of my own relatives, as, as, as some of my own cousins, um, had, had sex with the cow, um, broke up relationships. Okay, that's a clear and accurate identification of myself. But then I start saying, oh, well, that's kind of messy. You know, I just, let's clean that up just a little bit. Let's leave something. <laughs> Okay, that's that's right there. That's it. That's the snowball. That's the toboggan ride to hell right there. The minute I start backing off to myself of what I am, the minute I forget who I am, that's a first step problem, and I'm on my way to oblivion. We've had some slips in old timers recently, and that's been what it was. They forgot. They were sexaholic. And they forgot what kind of sexaholic they were. Because being a sexaholic does not mean saying I'm a sexaholic. It means that thing with some bite in it and some specificity to it. So, like the meeting we had uh, last night and that kind of identification that they had there at that meeting, and that's, that's what we need for our sobriety. And uh, they're doing that on the net a lot now. Uh, I say half the people on the net are doing it. And so it's a great precedent that they're setting. Okay, um, finding our truth, painting our truth on the living canvas of the meetings so we can see our new and our deeper and our whole and our real entire truth. The A Big Book, the White Book, and listening to A and essay tapes are our guides and companions. Our sponsor guides and watches us. We have made the switch from having to go to meetings to wanting to go to meetings. How many of you have to go to meetings here? How many of you want to go to meetings? And, and that's an important switch to make it to, to eventually, you know, to make it to today. And there's no, there's no point in holding your hand up, yeah, I want to go when you don't want to go. That's a lie. That'll get you, that'll get you drunk. In our new world of essay meetings, steps, traditions, and concepts, we have the greatest freedom and joy possible. 
page 45 says, The lack of power was our dilemma. And finding the power is exactly what this book is about. It is not about just staying sober. It is also, as it says on page 89, working with others, that we find that constant work with the newcomers are best defense against our disease. On page 17, and page 77, fourth sentence, our primary purpose is to be of maximum service to God and others about us. Okay. I found it. The thing that was really of help to me, I make a bunch of posters for myself often. The main one is beneath the spiritual lies the sacred. We create sacred art when we put our entire truth on canvas. Our entire truth is what God created us to be. Beneath the spiritual lies the sacred. We create sacred art when we put our entire truth on canvas. Our entire truth is what God created us to be. And that's what I see my life is about, is putting my entire truth on canvas. Now that does not mean writing books. That does not mean doing these tapes. It means living life moment by moment. Vaughn and I had a talk about that in the break, and she was asking for the parts that, how in the hell, uh, she didn't say it, she said it in a very gro nice way, but in, in a sense, how in the hell do you have sex in marriage without lust? And the answer is, it's simple. It isn't easy. It's a, one of the hardest things in the world, but it is simple. And people are learning to do it. And what you do, you are always where you are. Now, when a sexaholic has sex in marriage, they start in lust and end in lust. They start in lust for certain aspects of sex that they're looking forward to, and they end in lust uh, for the next time they can have sex so they can have those aspects that they were looking for and didn't get or looking for and have again. They are never where they are in, marriage, in, in sex and marriage. Okay, what does sex and marriage without lust look like? It is uh, uh, a husband picks up his clothes when he gets up in the morning and puts them in the dirty clothes hamper, and the wife uh, is baking, is uh, making some eggs, and uh, they eat uh, fried eggs together, and then they do this, and then they do that, and there's a whole series of crescendo of increasingly tender moments that. Uh, culminates in the idea that maybe they should go to bed together not to have sex but just to get in bed with each other and hold each other and then that turns into sex and um, and whatever happens in sex happens and then uh, it's over and there's an appreciation of whatever uh, there's appreciation of the peace and calm of being together and always both of them are where they are and where the event is okay that's the simple process of sex in marriage without lust well for a sexaholic to get there I'll tell you there ain't no Norwegian gonna guide you to that one <laughs> that takes about 10 gods working overtime to get you and me there but there are ten gods willing to work overtime for us, each of us, so we can get there.
And when we when will we get there? <laughs> In God's time. So that's what I'm interested in doing is making sacred art with my life. Not talking about sacred art. should count each day a separate life. What is the life I am fashioning today with prayerfulness and living a life on purpose? You become a saint the moment you set your feet on the path to sainthood. So each of you in this room are saints. You know, and that's the problem that you have is you don't understand it. And why are you saints? Because the path that your feet are on now leads to sainthood. The path of prayer and surrender to God is what saints are. And they don't magically and someday become a saint. It just happens. We've got a film on Mother Teresa where one of her sister monks or sister, one of her sisters, fellow sisters at the uh, school of Calcutta where she taught, was said when they were when Mother Teresa was with them, she was just an ordinary nun. In other words, she was not a saint. Well, why don't you get to be a saint when you're uh, in the teaching order uh, in Calcutta? I don't know, and uh, not very many saints have been coming out of there. But Mother Teresa then had a call from God. And took a train trip, uh, a train trip to Darjeeling, and God told her you were to work with the poorest of the poor. And she started working with the poorest of the poor, and she acted her way to right thinking and feeling, which is the AA formula for sainthood. We don't think and feel our way to right action. We act our way to right. We act our way to right thinking and feeling. Okay, it's an action program. Now, how how can a bunch of flannel mouths like well, excuse me, a flannel mouth like me, how can a flannel mouth like me consistently act my way to right thinking and feeling? And the answer is only with the help of God. So we act our way to right thinking and feeling. So where does the power come to see the race to its end? So where does the power come to see the race to its end and from within? And that's the power you guys are going to draw on right now for the next, for the rest of this tape. Remember, we got some more weight to lift.
Philosophers and running water always seek the easiest way out. <laughs> and we are not talking about the easy way out here, I'll tell you, buddy. <laughs> Vince used to say, when the, when, the, when the twelve apostles would tell him what he had to do, I don't know, the, you know, some of you might not know what the expression of cold deck means, but any of you who played poker in the cards just will not fall for you. Every hand you get is junk. And the guy opposite, when you do get something, the guy opposite, you got something twice as good. That's a cold deck. It costs you a ton of money. Okay. And Vince says when those guys were talking to him, it was like sitting down to a cold deck. And this is what we've been talking about all day today. It's a cold deck. The, the, where's the wiggle room in what we've been talking about? Huh? There, where's the wiggle room? There ain't any. Not a bit. The answer is God. Now, what is the question? <laughs> the answer is God. Now, what is the question? <laughs> Be completely honest and open. Put your heart and soul in whatever you do. Have faith in yourself. Have patience. And in time, you'll be able to achieve your goal. That's the guy who makes the wine, Mondavi. It's, it took his whole life to do it. But now here's a California vineyard that's selling $90 a bottle of wine. You, <laughs> you say $90 wine in California in the same sentence? Very many years ago, they laughed you out of the business. We cannot see things as they are. We can only think, see things as we are. So get, you know, look, look how that applies to what we've been doing here today. You know, you've seen every person who's asked a question know the answer. And they know that the answer is in them because it's in how they see. This is why Chuck says this program is a new pair of glasses. So you'll be able to see things you never saw before. So we cannot see things as they are. We can only see things as we are. Another thing one of my students sent, uh, gave me is a little plaque. He said, I was not put in this, uh, for me it was, I was not put in this world to, to set things right. I was put in this world to see things right. How can I navigate if I don't know where the rocks are? I can't navigate by deciding to be an underwater demolition expert blasting out rocks in front of my ship. I gotta, I gotta know where the rocks are and sail around them. And here's another interesting little sign I had up for a while. Lord, I am delighted to obey you in this matter. <laughs> and then this is from my wife spirituality involves letting go of three needs the need to be in control the need to be effective and the need to be right 
Father Richard Rohr, great monk who speaks to all kinds of different religious orders. And then here's a powerful statement from the great psychiatrist in Germany, Walter Leichner and Horst Esslinger. They tell, don't ever say anything to make something happen. And again, this is something I've been hewing to as close as I could today, is not to say something or show you something so that something will happen in you. My job is doing my business. But so often, you know, uh, we've done manipulative sharing. Somebody needs to hear a certain thing that we have have to share a certain way so they can get the point and recover and be beautiful showcases for our wonderful wisdom and program. And then here's a beautiful uh, thing that was it's attributed to Nelson Mandela in his inauguration speech, but it's actually from William, Marianne Williamson in one of her books. And this applies so much to what has come up here a number of times today. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? See, they're talking about you, Glenn. <laughs> Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that's within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone, and as we let our own light shine, we consciously give other people the permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our fear, our presence automatically liberates others. And you can see why Mandela excuse that. I've just got a couple more of these. One of them says his power is perfected in weakness. So no wonder we're so powerful. <laughs> and the last one. I can't judge another. One reason being I don't know his demons. And uh, we see people who making a fight. And there might be all kinds of people around us who are doing ten times the job that we're doing. Considering the resources they have and the resources we have. And considering the demons they face. And the demons, the few demons we face. But we want to exalt ourselves and say, no, it's the other way. I'm doing an unbelievable job. Well, why don't they all work hard and do a great job like me? No, I don't like that side of the argument. Okay? Yes, Glenn. My name is Glenn. I'm a sexaholic. Hi, Glenn. <laughs> and this is the question I don't want to ask. Um, I've got about a little over four years in the essay program. Mm -hmm. And I've got about 46 days sober. Yeah. Um, the longest period of sobriety I've had to date has been 14 months, for which I'm never sufficiently grateful. Um, during the 
four plus years, I've continually come back to this program. Um, but I'm still not staying sober. And uh, How do you know? Well, I keep acting out. Uh, when was the last time you acted out? Uh, 46 days ago. Who says you're going to act out again? Me. <laughs> oh, that's, this is a funny thing. Uh, I don't know that much about AA, but, uh, you know, to me, it looks to me like we might have a little bit more slipping in SA than, than there is in AA. Now, some of the AA guys tell us this is pretty hard uh, compared to theirs, but again, we don't live on comparisons. But what I see about the slippers in SA when they keep coming back is they keep doing better every time they come back and gradually at their own pace they get what we've got to, to offer and their uh, the amount of slipping they have is less and the, the um, uh, they just they just look better uh, I've heard AA guys getting drunk and dropping out of the program for, well, we have it in SA too, I was going to say, for quite a while and not and before they come back. But uh, to me, the, to me, that if we, if you stay on this path that you're on, you, uh, well, you are staying on the path we're on. So you're on your path to sainthood. Okay. The problem that you've got is is to have the willingness to accept that and its consequences, like the things I've been reading here. Uh, if you and I are on our path to sainthood, then we can't be crying babies, giving excuses for what we do and don't do. We can't be full of crappy innuendos and sexual stuff, <laughs> like this one a guy and his sponsee of some years uh, got rid of him and got a different sponsee and finally he asked the guy finally what made you get rid of me as a sponsor as a sponsor and he said well there were always all these sexual innu innuendos in your talk okay so we we learn to watch ourselves in like a hawk and that's the one thing I haven't used here and uh, it's been a very helpful thing to me I tell my sponsees to have a hawk that is circling overhead at all times. And what a hawk does is he's watching for movement of any kind in the leaves below, because that means that there's a gopher, a mouse, or something that he's going to swoop down on and eat. So an, uh, a hawk needs to be just constantly aware. Okay, so I had my hawk circling over me and alerting me when I'm in uh, troubled waters. Now I'll walk in the post office and I'll sometimes run into say some woman there, um, a younger woman and sometimes I'll find myself having talked to her maybe three to five minutes before I realize, whoa, wait a minute Buster, get out of here because this is not a legitimate exchange. So that's my hawk waking me up. And uh, the longer I'm in the program, the faster I am to wake up. 
the better my hawk works, the less difficulty I see in behavior. So uh, it's just everything we've talked about all day today, Glenn. It's just um, like I say, my wife and I practically wore out a set of Chuck uh, tapes. There's I think five tapes or six tapes in that uh, new pair of glasses set. Just listen to them over and over and over again just to learn those lessons. And that's just one resource we use. So, but you've got the biggest thing that's necessary, and that is you want it. Now, there's a funny thing between wanting to want it and wanting it. And a lot of us are in that phase of wanting to want. You know, we know it's a good thing to want, and and we're kind of a caught by our own philosophies. we got to say we want it, but a little, there's a little part of us that's holding something back. Okay, any thoughts on what it said? Um, it sounds a lot like the, uh, the uh, poem you read earlier about what if. Yeah. And, uh, and I hate having a simple answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're, great, you're a great philosopher. And great philosophers, you know, hate simplicity. But this, and that's the problem though. This is exceptionally simple, but it is deceptively simple. Because it's so hard for us to understand that if something as simple as this is as hard as it is. I'm, in, I'm used to success in business, and I'm in this business that I'm in, and oh boy, is that honey tough. Holy smokes. And I got it all figured out. I know exactly how it works. But I am having one devil of a time. Being a, a leader with a, a, a voluntary organization where people just purely follow me because they want to follow me. In a, in a business setting. And so I'm weighed and found wanting and getting up and brushing myself off and coming back. So I'm in the same kind of spot, Glenn. Just dusting myself off and straightening out my feathers that I got to be out of shape and coming back into the fight and doing it again. And I ain't ever going to quit. God willing. So, uh, and I've, I've got a lot of benefits and a lot of rewards already, even though they aren't the ones I had in mind when I started out. Speak a wise class. Now you're not a class, you're friends and peers. Yes, um, my name's Rich. I'm a lust daddy. Yeah, Rich. Right. Um, I was wondering, I, I don't know if this is something you care to speak on or not, but I found myself wanting to hear your comments on that first paragraph in chapter 5 Which that we read. Rarely have we seen a person fail? What part? Just uh, what it takes. Well, wait, so the question Glenn is asking is, you know, what, how, how come I'm failing, really? Yeah. yeah, and, you know, like honesty, I guess. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Well, I think the answer is right there. Is 
it is an awful big order for me to completely give myself to this program. It is an awful big order. It calls for a reversal of everything that's been near and dear to me. Um, who in the heck was it? Some? Oh, uh, I know. It's in the new tape on tape of the month. This this month, the guy is at, he's kind of going through this litany of questions that people ask him a lot of times because he got he's got 33 years of sobriety. Uh, you must be a, a very strong person to have overcome your alcoholism. No, sir, I'm weak. I surrender. Well, uh, it means you must have a lot of willpower. No, sir, I have no willpower. Just pray to God. You know, and he goes on and down, much better than that. But this beautiful thing of his process, and he isn't done with the process, because I had some misgivings about that guy. Because uh, he has got one of the biggest handicaps there is. This is one of the huge ones. Uh, and that is the problem, with all due respect, there's a couple of alcoholism counselors here, but I have to say this anyway, is that is one hell of a tough handicap to overcome. What Vince used to call, he said, they they're, they become institutionalized. We they use these words in their business so much over and over again that the words lose some of the meaning. It was like when I was judging an oratory contest among uh, for high school kids, and they were reciting some of them Patrick Henry's "Give me liberty or give me death," and they were saying "Give me liberty or give me death." Well, that isn't the way Patrick Henry said it. When you say that the first time, you say, give me liberty or give me death. Okay, you can't say that a hundred times that way. Because the feeling and the words come separated. That's what Vince meant by institutionalized. Okay. Uh, and it's sad that people in such a life completely give themselves to this simple program. And, uh, well, she's... She is tough. She really is tough to do that that sentence right there. And so what I do is I'm just praying that... Uh, well, another example came from Vince. Uh, <coughs> when I was a in the charismatic Pentecostal movement, there was a one of the ministers told about how he was in a seminary in Atlantic City, New Jersey, and looking out over the ocean. And in some... A foggy morning, he was just seized by a fit of holiness. And he prayed to God, God, please show me me as I am. He said pretty soon there was a saliva, of, a pile of saliva and tears there on the floor. He said, I never prayed that prayer again. Because you see the greed in that? Boy, you show me me as I am and I can handle it. I can't handle me as I am. This is an elephant. I can eat only a bite of the elephant today. So Vince's prayer was, God help me move my mind a little further off Skid Row today. And that prayer we can make. If we make that prayer enough, we get a long ways from Skid Row. Now we don't necessarily get freedom. I don't know how much freedom I'm going to have. But I sure got a lot more than I used to have. And I got enough freedom to have some beautiful days. But that's not the end of it. And I don't send any stock on it. I appreciate it. But 
but the trick is every day that my mind be a little further off skid row because I was in the skid row of the mind I didn't be there with Vince for 10 years as a wino but I was in the, the stuff I did one of the things I did here I was a trusted uh, one of the original trusted servants one of those other 12 step groups and I used my position a woman and her husband came and she was frightened she had sex and that's actually frightened that she had cancer and wanted some counseling I turned it into a sexual deal. Is there anything lower than that? Nothing. No skid row, wino breathing in his, somebody's face is lower than that. Okay, so I've gone as low as you can go. Now somebody says, I'll say, well, I've gone just as low. I say, okay, but you can't tell me you're going any lower. Okay, so i got a long way to go to get off that skid row of the mind. And, I, and, I, and, I, and I've, I've got to be satisfied with coming a little ways at a time. That's the toughest, you know, that's the toughest there is. Come on. That's the toughest there is right there. Don't get any harder than that. Thank God I couldn't handle it anymore. <laughs> Hi, Vaughn, and I'm a sexaholic. Yeah, Vaughn. Uh, I, uh, I came in to this program through the ethanol program, and I'm... I'm still having a lot of trouble not wanting to blame him for my problem, which is last addiction, sex addiction. And I'm still involved in the Essendon program and a group like that. And I, I'm beginning to feel that participating in that at this point is giving me more reason to think it's his problem and not mine. So my question is, would you suggest I concentrate on just one program for a while? Yeah. Yeah, there's no sense increasing the agony. <laughs> we got we got enough agony where we belong. <laughs> and uh, it's inhuman. But also our mind is cunning, baffling, and powerful. We can twist any dang thing to make it work for us, you know. Make it look noble? Yeah, yeah. And then also to see the problem as being an other person. I mean, I love to see the problem being you instead of me. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And there's a terrible French proverb. Who can help but rejoice a bit at his friend's misfortune? Mm. You know. And what that is, is... is uh, when our friend has a misfortune, we have some of these feelings like, thank God it wasn't us. Or, yeah, he always had that side to him, didn't he? You know? Uh, mm, yeah. You know? And so, well, when you're dealing with that kind of stuff, uh, make it easier, as easy on yourself as you can to, because you got elephant to eat every day, and 
and in no sense doubling up on the dosage and just because you're a big girl and careful of you know you're capable of and all kinds of really tough yeah. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And maybe you are, but I ain't. I can't. Okay. I can't do it. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Got a question, Jess? Yeah, um, Bob. What if um, you're not sponsoring somebody, uh, but they're in the fellowship and you know uh, that they're basically going off track? I mean, when does it become um, a boundary problem and when does it become a maybe our responsibility here. I don't, I don't uh, exactly know how to phrase the question, but if you see somebody going off track, I mean, um, you're not sponsoring them. Is that uh, your responsibility to tell them what you see? Or is it uh, your responsibility to mind your own business? <coughs> well, the funny thing, Bob, is um, Clancy gives us a rule on that. But the dang rule breaks down. <laughs> Uh, his basic rule is don't let the sun set on something I should have said to somebody that I have some direct or indirect responsibility to. So according to that, I got to say something. Like I can tell the guy, hey, have you got a, have you got a sponsor? I see you having some difficulties where you need a sponsor. Do you have a sponsor? And the guy says no. I says, well, will you accept me as your temporary sponsor for a while? And I'll offer what I got to see if you can find any value in it. Or I can take Clancy's rule and say, I got to pray on this thing. I got to not say that to the guy and just ask God for guidance. God, I see something. I see something. I think might be a wreck here. But this guy hasn't shown any indication that he wants me in his life. And I need your help in in that matter. And uh, uh, I've got a situation like exactly like that in town. We got a guy who I think has some some mental problems. Uh, he never had a sponsor. Uh, I see him needing one at different times, and and. Uh, but it hasn't seemed appropriate to say something to him in all these years. Other cases, I'll just barge up to the guy and say something. How do I know which is which? I don't. Am I? What's my batting average? I don't know. It, the way it's pretty good. Better than you know. In baseball, he needs one out of three to be a, be a hero. And uh, a lot of times, I'll bat you know one out of three. Um, yeah, you look funny, silly, because when the two out of three that you strike out, you look foolish, dumb. But again, I sure like what Clancy has to say about that, because I sure sleep better at night that way. But I don't belong in every situation. And because uh, this program is under God's care, and each of us in this program are under God's care, and there's something going on that a lot of times we don't able we aren't able to understand in the short run.
Hi, I'm Cyrus Lestaholic. Hi, Cyrus. Great to be here. Great to have you, Cyrus. About six months ago, um, I was advised to go off of sugar and uh, wheat because it's toxic for me. Sugar and? And wheat. What's the second word? Wheat. Wheat. Because it's toxic for me. Yep. And, and I've known that for a long time now, and I have not gone to OA. Um, I see. Well, um, why, why should you? You can do it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and um, but as soon as I got into SA and SNN, it was like, you know, I, I knew what my problem was. Okay. It was, I identified with the problem. Okay. And then I have a solution today. Which is? Which is that I am not in church. Huh? I am not in church. Okay, but do, are you eating sugar and wheat? No, I'm not. But in the last six months, uh, six months ago, I was told that the reason, yeah. it was, I saw it. Yeah. And so I, I haven't been eating. And I have, and, okay. it, and I think that's happening only because I've been in this program. Yeah, okay. I, I think the less programs we can use, the better. So if you can get it done, through AA or through SA and and Essendon, do great. Um, but uh, and you're using you're using somebody else to help you in a sense. You're using your SA group to help you. And uh, uh, boy, I don't see much good results of the people trying to work four or five programs at the same time. So as long as it's working, do it now. If you find you can't stay off the sugar and wheat, okay, then then get an OA person in there and to work that too. But uh, what I find is once once I get to the primary problem, then all the other things uh, become manageable, reasonably manageable. And uh, my weight my weight, for example, was the same for. Oh, 20, 25 years. Uh, I have uh, the blessing of congestive heart failure, and so my heart is twice normal size. And uh, as that heart is uh, pumping now much less effectively, I pick up fluid a lot more. So the belly is fluid rather than fat because it wasn't there, and then all of a sudden it magically appeared with no change in eating. So, uh, but we need we need to be willing to get the help we can get, and that's really the only question to ask yourself: Do I need more help? And if I don't, okay. And but if I see that I need help, be willing to get the help. Okay. And I, and I had a comment on uh, on the circular nature of steps. You know, the, the scientist Kekule dreamed of the benzene ring yeah. and uh, sort of um, just bought an allegory to me about our steps. You know, it's, it goes from one to ten and after ten comes one and one and after that comes one and two and then comes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I was just thinking about it as you were talking yeah. and it was beautiful. I, I didn't know about the benzene ring. You say. Uh, well, he dreamed of it. You know, he. I see. It, this was when. When it was just discovered. Starting yeah. Okay. Discovering the organic uh, nature of. Okay. Um, 
And then, so he dreamed of it in a dream that if the carbon atoms actually were in a ring. Yeah. And that was like, a, it was just like, grab, he was grappling with the problem of yeah. how to structure Okay, I've heard that basic story and I didn't realize it now. And I see now what you're saying. Yeah, okay. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, my, my sponsor, you know, when I'm having a, tr you know, some problem with a step, um, she'll say, I'll say, oh, I'm having trouble, I'm in step seven, and she'll say, so maybe you should go to step six. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, you know, sometimes she'll say, maybe you're ready for the next step. Yeah. And, and so, yeah. it's like... Yeah. And if that's yeah. the one and one and yeah. one and uh, two. Yeah, yeah. Good. Good. Thank you, sir. Thanks, sir. Well, we've gotten to know each other here, huh? Yes. Friends you hadn't even, the more this morning you hadn't met, now you all of a sudden you've got deep things in common. Yeah. I'm Bruce from Toronto Civilist. I'm Bruce. Um, since I came into SA, when I first started in, I started telling everybody, including my boss, that I was a sexaholic and stuff like that. And as I've been in the program, I've seen other people doing that, uh, telling their kids, <laughs> going into complete detail with their spouses and stuff like that. And it seems like it's pretty disruptive, is what I've seen. Um, I see a lot of newcomers come in and want to just unload with all kinds of people. Yeah. And it's just I've heard in program people advocating to do that, and other people saying, "Don't do that." I just wanted to get your take on that. Well, I think thanks, Bruce. I think uh, the thing I've seen so much about us is we're such exhibitionists. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we want attention. And, and I, uh, most of what I see of that is harmful. And a lot of spouses and kids are finding out a lot more than they ever wanted to know about us. Yeah, I'm uh, Dennis's sexaholic. I just wanted to share the positive part of that. Uh, I had a gun to my head before I got into the essay. And uh, I was lusting after my daughter, my 15-year-old daughter's friend. And I thought, well, I know my history, and I'm going to follow through on this. So the only way to stop this is to blow my brains out. Well, I put the gun to my head and uh, prayed this simple prayer you talked about this morning. Help, God. And... I laid down, fell asleep. Three hours later, I got up, went to work, met my employee there, and uh, he said, Dennis, before we get started, I'd like to share with you, I'm in this program, and I'm taught to make amends. He'd only been in it about a month and a half. So he was a little premature, but he said, I'm an SA. And I've been acting kind of weird around work, not very good, good, very productive and all that. But that's the positive part of that. God uses that. Yeah. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, and again, this, and I'm so glad you brought that up because 
it lets me say something every, most every time when I talk to a sponsee. I tell them, I very carefully told you what to do. Now, for God's sakes, don't do it. <laughs> you pray on the matter and get God's guidance. So God is guiding you instead of me. Because there is absolutely no principle that doesn't have an exception or a fair number of them. And what, what you know, and there are these. Now, what, uh, what the question, the way I heard the original question is, aren't we overdoing this a lot? And the answer is, I think we are. But you, each of you will be guided to know when it is appropriate to use. And when you're dumping versus when you're actually sharing. And like, what should I tell my kids? And, uh, I don't think most kids are ready to handle that their dad is a sexaholic unless there's some, you know, real difficult. There are some exceptions, though, uh, to that. My name is Mark, and I'm a sexaholic. Mark. Mark. And uh, this has been on my mind for the last couple of days because I had a conversation on the phone with my wife on Thursday or Friday. It was Friday. And uh, she'd been talking to my son, and he'd expressed some real anger about some things that I'd done to him when I was... Well, it was when he was younger. He's 10 now. He was probably 6 when I did these things. I, uh, I abandoned him a couple of times while I went to a video store to get, to get videos. Uh, the first time I came home to find him standing out in the street crying, wondering where his dad was. And I promised him I wouldn't do it again, and then I did. Um, and then another time I got very angry with him, and I uh, told him to get out of the car and told him how to find his way home, but, you know, he was only six. And he remembers those things, and he's very upset about them, and I've talked to him about them before, and I just don't know, you know, is there something else I should be doing, or should I just, uh, should I be just, like, trying to work a program and change my ways and be a better dad? And, uh... What I, the only thing I'd raise is for you to look at is I would be doing as many things as I can with that kid as I could and you can't make up for something like that but you can uh, you can create a, a better situation one of our guys came home from treatment and uh, was playing catch with his kid out front and all of a sudden his kid went running in the house I think he was you know like fourth grade at the time third he said mom mom dad has played catch with me for 15 minutes this is the first time my dad's ever done that. And the dad thought he'd played catch a lot with his kids for long periods of time. But obviously he hadn't, or that kid wouldn't have felt that way. But whatever the case was, the amount of catch that he was playing now was such that it really got a big reaction from the kid. And this goes back to what you're saying is, um, you know, and it goes back to our own program. We don't want to neglect things like that. Well, when my son, uh, he, he was fairly, let's see, I came in in 83. 
So Joe was uh, about 26 at the time. And then he came home and lived with us. And uh, I wanted him to know that uh, he was really welcome to live there and bought him a beautiful pair of skis and a ski outfit and and uh, did a whole bunch of stuff. And uh, he'd been with us for about four years. And they, uh, he was driving the truck and we we're getting some corral poles into the corral. And I was kind of motioning him. He's learning disabled, so it's hard for him to you know, left and right and stuff like that. And boy, he just blew up at me. And I thought, how long, God? How long? <laughs> you know, uh, I'd had that much time of, of what, as I saw, not doing anything harmful to him. Now I'd been a space cadet of a father, even in recovery. You know, was a super space cadet in addiction, but in recovery, you don't just immediately come out of it and be <laughs> total aware of people. But but that was me making the best amends I could and and the, and the slow course of it it just it just takes time it, it took 10 years for my wife to get over what I had said to her about the things I did and now the last 5 years things have been very different and I hardly hear about any of that stuff anymore so it does work and time does help us. My wife has been talking about putting him in play therapy. Yeah. You know about play therapy? No, I can guess what it would be. Uh, Is that sure. Yeah, do any kind of stuff. But also do your own play therapy with him. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. How much time we got? Four minutes, Jess. Okay. Well, before our four minutes are up, I want to tell you how much uh, you've meant to me. It's a priceless opportunity you give me. Uh, you've let me express myself. I've got an article here. I won't go into pictures because it doesn't mean much, but there's a new architect emerged. Gary is his name. He's building some museums. And they're just so stunning that they expect like uh, 200,000 people will come to the museum and, and 500,000 come instead. His buildings are just, just so powerful. And uh, what he's using is computer technology to shape, to produce the shapes. And then they're using computer technology to produce those forms out of what, whatever material they want to produce them out of, whether it's uh, concrete or uh, marble or steel. But what's such a powerful thing about it and how it applies to what we've been talking here today is he broke away, he broke into new creative ground and went where no one else has ever gone before. And other, what kept other people from going there? And it is this stuff that we've been hanging on to this holding us back we're dragging a bunch of anchors each of us and we need to quit dragging the anchor that thing we're hanging on to is a hindrance to us and we need to let go of our addiction let go of those old ways many of us have, many of us have tried to hold on to the old or the old ideas 
the old ways? The old ideas. The old ideas. Yeah, and it didn't work, and it doesn't work. And so this this program and, and the people here offer you the opportunity for the freedom. Uh, like Vince used to say, uh, we weren't meant to be these kind of people. We are in addiction. We were meant to be creative, outgoing personalities. That's what we were created to be, is like this architect here. But so few men like him and Frank Lloyd Wright and others are be able to just, you know, see it all and, 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 and just expand into the beauty and majesty that God created us to be of a great ballerina or great architect or great stonemason, great telephone installer. My friend Bill Oriot was an unbelievable gifted telephone installer for Mountain Bell. When he came there to Bozeman from Great Falls with these beautiful mountains that he always loved in the elk hunting, he told this big corporation, you know, we all know corporations run us wrong. He told Mountain Bell, don't you ever promote me or transfer me. I'm going to climb these poles as long as I'm able. And he had this beautiful life there in Bozeman and, and created this marvelous painting his, with his sacred art. And that's what each of us need to do. And that's what each of you have allowed me to do here today. So I just uh, thank you from the bottom of my heart. So thank you very much. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.